You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip for you about starting a sentence with the word because. Neil Whitman wrote a piece about modals and regionalisms, such as we might could go to the store. And finally, I'll have a tidbit about the dot over the letter I, which is called a tittle. A few weeks ago, we talked about whether you need a comma before the word because, which prompted some people to ask whether you can start a sentence with because. You can. A lot of people were taught in grade school not to start a sentence with because, but that's a myth. You just have to make sure you're writing a complete sentence and not a sentence fragment. Because heads up subordinate clauses, which means that if you have a clause that starts with because, you also have to have a main clause in your sentence. A main clause is just something that could be a complete sentence all by itself. A subordinate clause can come before or after the main clause, and if it comes first, you need a comma between the subordinate clause and the main clause. Here are some examples. Because Squiggly woke up late, comma, he had to postpone his trip. The subordinate clause comes first because Squiggly woke up late, so you put a comma after it. Squiggly had to postpone his trip because he woke up late. In that one, the subordinate clause comes second, so you don't need a comma between the two clauses. And this is the kind of sentence fragment you want to avoid, because he woke up late. All by itself, that's just a subordinate clause, and without a main clause, it's a sentence fragment. To summarize, you can start sentences with because. Just be sure you have a complete sentence and your commas are in the right place. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Next, Neil Whitman wrote this piece about modals and regionalisms. Not long ago, a listener who likes my iOS game Grammar Pop asked us to record a podcast on modal auxiliary verbs. So here it is. We'll start with the basics of modals, and then talk about one way of using modals that's associated with Southern American English. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me talk about auxiliary verbs which also go by the less fancy name of helping verbs. English has only a few helping verbs, and we can divide them into four groups. One group consists of the forms of be, am, are, is, was, were, be, being, and been. Another consists of forms of have, have, has, had, and having. A third category of helping verbs is forms of do, do, does, and did, 
In case you're wondering why the forms doing and done aren't on the list, you can consider those helping verbs too if you like. If helping verbs were a football team, though, doing and done would be the bench warmers, who never actually get sent into play. For more about the overall strangeness of the verb do, you can see episode 320 at quickanddirtytips.com. That whole episode was about do and how weird it is. The fourth group, you may have guessed, consists of the modal auxiliaries. But before we talk about them, I should note that be, do, and have aren't always helping verbs. In the sentence, squiggly is running a marathon, the verb is is a helping verb. But in the sentence, squiggly is aardvark's second best friend, it's a linking verb. And you can learn more about linking verbs in the old Good Versus Well episode. In the sentence, aardvark doesn't eat grits and has never wanted to, the verbs doesn't and has are helping verbs. But in the sentence, aardvark does crossword puzzles and has an amazing collection of Rubik's cubes, the verbs does and has are ordinary verbs, or in linguist speak, lexical verbs. Now, moving on to the modal auxiliaries. The most common ones are will, would, shall, should, can, could, may, might, and must. Modal auxiliary verbs are defective, and yes, that's the actual term, defective. It means they're missing some forms. For example, they don't have third-person singular present forms. Or to put it more plainly, sentences like he cans, she mays, and it woulds are ungrammatical. They also don't have infinitive forms, so even though it would make sense, a sentence such as they seem to should practice more is ungrammatical. Another way in which modal auxiliaries differ from lexical verbs is that their past tense forms usually don't show past time. In fact, you might not even have realized that some modal verbs are actually past tense forms. I didn't until I started taking an interest in grammar. Will, shall, can, and may are present tense forms. The corresponding past tense forms are would, should, could, and might. Must doesn't have a separate past tense. Of all the modal past tenses, the only one that's used very much to refer to past time is could, as in when I was in high school, I could bench press 300 pounds. Instead of showing past time, past tense modals typically perform one of two other functions. One of these functions is called modal remoteness, which is a technical term for unlikelihood. This is what you get in conditional sentences, such as, if I won the lottery, I could start a new business. Even outside conditional sentences, past tense modals show this kind of remoteness. For example, telling someone she would help you suggests that you just need to give her the word, whereas she will help you means it's as good as done. In a more specific kind of modal remoteness, the past tense of modal auxiliaries can show politeness. If you're a native English speaker, you may have a gut feeling that it's more polite to ask someone, could you do me a favor, than can you do me a favor. Could you do me a favor sounds less pushy. That's because the past tense could presents the scenario of someone doing you a favor as less likely than the present tense word can does. 
It shows that you're not assuming the person is just naturally going to do you a favor, and in this way, it conveys politeness. Aside from modal remoteness, the other function that modal past tenses perform is called backshifting, or as it's sometimes known, sequence of tenses. Suppose Squiggly says to Aardvark, I may go skiing in November. If Aardvark is talking to Fenster about Squiggly later on, he might say, Squiggly said he might go skiing in November. The modal verb may gets put into the past tense might, not to indicate past tense or show modal remoteness, but just to match the past tense verb said. Squiggly said he might go skiing in November. Lexical verbs can backshift too. If Aardvark tells Squiggly, you are my second best friend, and Squiggly tells Fenster about it later, he might say, Aardvark said I was his second best friend, using was just to match the past tense of said. In addition to may, might, can, could, will, would, shall, should, and must, there are a few fringe members of the family of modal auxiliaries. One of them is ought, which is different from the others because it's the only modal verb that takes an infinitive. So you can say we must go or we should go, but if you use ought, it's we ought to go. Even further out on the fringe are some archaic uses of need and dare, as in silly people need not apply, and how dare you speak to me that way. Finally, let's get to the really fun part and talk about the use of modals that, according to the Yale Grammatical Diversity Project, is associated with Southern American English, as well as a few other varieties. It's called the double modal, or multiple modal, and appears in sentences such as, we might could help you, and you might should apologize to him. The problem isn't that these sentences don't make sense. Even if you wouldn't say these sentences yourself, you can tell that they mean the same thing as, we might be able to help you, and maybe you should apologize to him. But in standard English, even though other helping verbs can follow a modal, modals themselves can't. Although double modals certainly aren't standard English, and I don't recommend using them in formal nonfiction writing, in the dialects where they are used, they're subject to the same kind of unspoken rules of grammar as any other kind of construction. For example, a recent paper titled, We Might Should Oughta Take a Second Look at This, a syntactic reanalysis of double modals in Southern United States English, Daniel Hasty summarizes earlier research on double modals and notes that only may, might, and must are used as the first modal in a double modal. In addition, citing this previous research, he describes some restrictions on how you form questions with double modals. So to make a question out of the sentence, you might could go to the store for me, speakers of dialects with double modals will accept could you might go to the store for me? And might could you go to the store for me? But not might you could go to the store for me. I'll leave a link to Hasty's article on the transcript. There's a lot more to say about modal auxiliaries, but it'll have to wait for another episode. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, who has a PhD in linguistics, is a regular contributor to the Visual Thesaurus, and blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com. Finally, here's your tidbit. 
I've long been fascinated by the dot over the letter I. I know I'm weird. And that dot over the letter I is just like the dot over the letter J and is called a tittle. Did you know that we didn't always have a dot over the letter I in English? Or that Turkish has an I with a dot and without a dot? Or that the dot over the letter I wasn't always a dot? It's amazing. The first mark over the I in English looks like an upside-down U or crescent moon. I have a picture for you on the article about the dot over the letter I at quickanddirtytips.com. It's from the Gutenberg Bible, published in 1455. And in the book where I found most of this information, The History and Technique of Lettering, by Alexander Nesbitt, it's put forward as the first example of a mark over the letter I. 1455. The reason those marks started appearing in the first place is that with the Gothic writing of the time, many of the letters had very similar angles and line widths and were written so that they touched each other, making it nearly impossible to tell the difference between the sets of letters I-M and U-N when they were next to each other. I have a picture of that on the site for you, too, and you'll see that without the swoop over the I, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between I-M and U-N. Then, as writing styles changed, the upside-down U became more like a swoosh or a big accent mark, and eventually, in 1514, we're presented with the first example of an actual dot over the letter I. Once it was there, it stayed, even though lettering styles changed and the dot was no longer necessary to tell the difference between combinations of letters. If you care about this kind of thing, I highly recommend this book. Again, it's called The History and Technique of Lettering. In Turkish, the alphabet has two kinds of the letter I, one with a dot and one without, which has caused problems when cell phone keyboards don't properly distinguish between the two. People believe they're typing one letter and end up with a different one, which can change the whole meaning of their message. A recent article on Gizmodo told the story of a man who was murdered after he accidentally sent an insult to someone because his cell phone used the wrong version of the letter I. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but in this case, words actually did lead to a killing, all because of that dot over the letter I. Again, come to quickanddirtytips.com and look at that old Gothic lettering to see why the dot mattered back then. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. I've written seven books on language, and lots of schools are now using my student book, Grammar Girl Presents the Ultimate Writing Guide for Students, which you can find at your favorite bookstore. This podcast is produced in conjunction with Macmillan Holdings. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. 
Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.